HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello and welcome to Die Green. I'm your host, Max Sussman. And I'm Kate McCabe. Max, I have a question for you. Yes? Do you feel called to live a wilder life? Well, life with me is pretty wild, as it is. Indeed. Indeed it is. I don't always feel called to live a wilder life, but after speaking to our guest on this week's show, I nearly just, you know, stripped off all my clothes and ran straight into the forest. Why do you have to be naked? I don't know. I'm just wondering. I don't know if that I don't know if that's a good idea, but it was a really inspiring conversation and made me want to have it did make me want to reconnect. Our guest on today's podcast is Lucy O'Hagan whose project Wild Awake is doing a lot of really incredible things in Ireland. And what the project really is about is different ways to connect with ourselves and with the land to reestablish a connection with the natural world. Lucy is all about teaching ancestral skills, sharing ancestral knowledge, living off the land. She recently did a program where she ate only wild food for three months straight. So only food that she personally foraged, collected, caught herself, which is super cool and super inspirational. Um, Maybe a little bit more difficult to do, depending on where you live. Yeah, talking to Lucy, well, you know, on... Undyed Green, which is a show about Irish food and culture. I think uh, there's a impulse to sort of lean into like the consumer side of food, which is like, okay, yes, it's really important. Like restaurants, grocery stores, even stuff like farming, like where does the food come from? And what I really liked about talking to Lucy was it fit right in the topic of what we try to, issues we really try to engage in on the podcast, but it came in from a totally uh different angle than what we often 
approach it from. Um, in particular, I thought the wild eating, you know, Lucy went on a three month journey where she only ate wild foods. And that's not something we've ever really had the opportunity to talk to anybody about. Um, and so it really connected the conversations around food with conversations about the land and the environment and, and culture, because it's all about how we relate to those things and how we see those things as being interconnected. We really had a great conversation about about that, and it kind of came together in a really wonderful way, I think. We talked a little bit about different ways that people can get involved in reconnecting to their ancestral foodways. We talked a lot about different ways that people can get reconnected and live what she calls a wilder life, which maybe means different things to different people. But there are ways that you can reconnect, whether you're living in a very urban area where maybe gathering your own food isn't very possible, and somewhere where you live that that might be really close to nature. Like one thing that came up with, you know, when we were interviewing Lucy and in the conversation is it's not really practical for everybody to go on three month or six month or one year, like what wild eating experiences. Like obviously there's a challenge to that and it's not practical for a lot of people. But I think that there's something really important about making a conscious effort to reconnect with the land and, and be more con- be more aware of our relationship with it in a lot of different ways. And I think that Lucy's work is really important in that regard. And one really interesting thing that we talked about was the rites of passage that Lucy organizes with young people when they approach certain ages, whereas you would have a religious ceremony. For example, in the Catholic faith, you would have your first communion, your confirmation. Um, In Judaism, you would have a bar bat mitzvah. Um, Like, what are ways that young people when they are approaching different stages of their life who aren't religious can be able to be welcomed into community and have similar rites of passage as they move into adolescence and adulthood that don't involve organized religion. Yeah, which is like something people are more and more interested in in modern day Ireland, right? For a variety of reasons. Like we are, like generally speaking, like in this capitalist western approach to society and how we organize our lives like we are very disconnected from the origin of things from the earth itself and so like i was saying before like finding ways to reconnect with that and actually just be made to feel a part of it because obviously we all are a part of it but sometimes you don't feel that way and i think that that's part of the reason why things are going in such a bad direction in terms of climate crisis and everything like that it's because People don't really feel connected, like their individual actions, you know, can be connected to a larger collective that can create change. And that is connected to the land itself. So super important. I agree. And it also makes me think about as parents raising two young children, you know, when we were young, we didn't have cell phones or we weren't spending all of our time online. And I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey, um, certainly not a rural area, but When I was young, with my siblings and all the kids in our neighborhood, we used to just run around wild and free outside in people's backyards and just for hours and hours at a time, just playing with each other and being imaginative and 
you know, hiding in the woods and doing all sorts of um, super fun things like that. And kids these days don't do that. And it's not because they don't have access to those same backyards and wooded spaces. It's because they spend most of their free time on screens, whether it's watching TV, playing video games on YouTube, stuff like that. And so I love the idea of sending kids to forest school or really just being involved in different rites of passage that connect them to the land. Yeah. So listen to the interview with Lucy and uh, be prepared to get inspired yourself about new ways to think about things and new ways to view your relationship with the land and uh, how to get involved and however you can. Oh, and everyone, this is the last episode of Dyed Green for this season. Uh, after this episode, we'll take a little short break. See you guys in a few weeks. Thanks for listening. Lucy, welcome to Dad Green, and thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I think we wanted to start off by just asking you about Wild Awake, and if you could just give us a, the background of of how you came to start the project and what the origin story is, and we're imagining people listening to this show that might not know your work. So it'd be opportunity to start off and familiarize people with it. Great. Thank you. I love that phrase, origin story. Um, it always feels really strange to call Wild Awake a business, you know, because it's so much of my my life's work and it, it um, yeah, it sits so strongly on, on what I believe and what I hope for the world. So yeah, it feels beautiful to introduce it in a story form. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of the the intention of the project has sort of infused my life forever. Um, I, I grew up in the city. I grew up in Belfast, but I always had this strong connection with nature, thanks to yeah, my, my family. Um, and I moved to the countryside when I was, you know, about eight to 15 and lived in a very rural area. And in that time, nature being outside was a real, it was sanctuary for me. It was the place that I went to, to feel safe, to feel connected. So that was really the grounding of what was to become my my life and my livelihood. Um, so I was sort of led down many different paths. Um, I studied anthropology in university and went and lived in different um, different countries and experienced different cultures and this kind of connection with nature and this passion for being outside was always, yeah, a strong thread through my life. And when I came back to Ireland in like 2014, 2013, 2014, and I was really involved with activism and environmental activism. And uh, I came across something called Forest School. And I was already really interested in alternative forms of education and um, kind of like, yeah, I suppose being involved in activism really interested in more kind of um anarchist education and how we can form this kind of rad radical pedagogy and i came across forest school as a movement and was really attracted by the kind of child-led learner-led aspect of it the supported risk and of course the the being outside and um supporting learners to like grow in resilience and confidence through just supporting them to develop relationship. So I started a forest school in the Phoenix Park in Dublin in 2015 and everything kind of grew from there. It was really like this really affirming moment in my life where I realised, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to come home every day smelling of wood smoke with dirt beneath my fingernails and 
um, yeah, be at, be in this position where I was kind of standing at the door of connection for people, just like inviting them to look through and inviting people to reconnect with that um, that kind of wonder and awe that arises when we're in a in a place that is wild, or you know, even to reconnect to that wildness within ourselves. Um, so yeah, I, I learned with lots of different teachers. Um, links filled in being a really strong um yeah mentor and guide and friend in my life um and then as a result of journeys with her and with like doing lots of bushcraft courses and wildlife tracking and ethnobotany and then this convergence of like my life as an activist and this wish to kind of reconnect in a way that wasn't just these skills as separate something that people did on the weekends but something that's like the grounding of life ways and contextualize within the climate that we live in so yeah I set up Wild Awake in 2017 and that's kind of been me ever since of just like following this thread that brings me joy and gives me purpose and um, is really is really supported and reflected in the culture that I live in now that is feels very alive and feels very like ready, you know, for, for this kind of learning and this kind of being. So yeah, that's a little bit of the story. I assume that forest school was for young kids, for children. Yeah, yeah. So usually we were working with learners from about four to 16. Um, and then within that, I was offering rites of passage for young people as well. So I suppose looking at, you know, what obviously Ireland being a very Catholic country, we have these what would be would have been considered rites of passage like Holy Communion and Confirmation that have sort of been superimposed on what would have been culturally sanctioned rites of passage. So. Yeah, it was then working with teenagers, 16 plus as well, and then also training forest school leaders in Ireland as well. So, um, yeah, it's a really strong and thriving movement at the moment, both for young people, but like the community of forest school leaders in Ireland is actually such a beautiful community of people who are, again, just like so enlivened by this work and, and by being a part of something that gives them meaning and purpose. I was going to ask you what it was like to move from working with younger people to making your offerings available to adults and everyone. Um, but since you mentioned that the rites of passage and, and Catholicism, I'm just curious as someone who was raised Catholic myself and I had my communion and I had my confirmation and then I pretty much stopped going to church at, at age 14. I'm just curious, what are some of those rites of passage that would be stand in for those types of kind of religious ceremonies? What are those like through Wild Awake? Yeah, I mean, we're figuring it out, right? Because <laughs> nobody gave us the template of what these things should look like or feel like. And, and we're kind of trying to offer something in the absence of, um, yeah, I suppose in the absence of those teachings and in the absence of like a community who would have sent young people firstly out to um, have a rite of passage and to receive them back again as well. So previous rites of passage that we've had um, have been, you know, just like a day for the eight and nine year olds. So at this time where Holy Communion would have taken place. Like I've worked with parents over the space of, you know, about five months where they've come together 
to really um, invite them to define what it is that their values are, what it is that they as a community want for that young person, why they want them to step into this. Um, and um, then a day of celebration, because I suppose there are so many people who are turning away from the church now and like, what are they stepping into then? You know, it's kind of, it's a, it's a very difficult thing because in the absence of the community that's provided by some church, it's it's very difficult to know what, well, what is it that we're stepping into? Like, how is it that we mark these important transitions in our lives and celebrate them? And um, instead of just like moving through our lives without any kind of acknowledgement of thresholds of changes and celebrating change as a part of life. Um, so that was for the younger ones. And then, of course, when we get to like 13, 14, when there's that real fire, you know, that fire of adolescence, there's this, you know, very famous quote. Um, I don't know where it comes from. It's said to be an African proverb, but I don't know anything more than that. But, you know, if the youth aren't initiated into the village, then they will burn it down just to feel the warmth. Um, so really acknowledging that when we reach that, um, you know, that time of adolescence, that like passage from childhood into adulthood, that there needs to be risk, you know, like young people need to feel like that they have something to push against. And that's a really, I suppose it's a very maligned um, quality in our culture because it's a challenge, you know, it's a challenge to the status quo, which is what we need. Um, we know as cultural change makers, we need that challenge, like we need a new story. But for the status quo, that's very difficult because doesn't want to change and um, so yeah previously what we've done is worked with young people and more importantly also worked with their guardians and their caregivers and their parents um, over the space of a few months and within that there would be um, a week-long um, camp for young people to come into the woods to be together to explore the ancestral skills, which are a huge part of what I offer. So those kind of connective skills that connect people to their place in the world and to their ancestors and to their bodies. Um, and as a result, then from that, there's that connection to themselves, like what are the things that they're navigating to the wider culture? And then embedded within that is a ritual whereby they went out onto the land to keep a fire going from sunset to sunrise. And like these are, you know, young people, the youngest was 13, the eldest was 16. And to see them come back from that is like, it's quite something, you know, like you kind of visibly watch them grow um, when they return back through that threshold in the morning, whether they stayed awake the whole night or not. But to know that they went out there, that they experienced that kind of connection with with nature, with the other world, with whatever we want to call it. And then that they were welcomed back into a community that their parents and guardians are there to welcome them back as well, to be witnessed in that transition. Um, you know, it's a very challenging thing to do because we don't have the supports to kind of support that integration phase, which is the most important part of any rite of passage. You know, how do we incorporate this? How do we make sure that this experience doesn't just drift off in our memory but how do we really make sure that it lands in a person so that they're able to really yeah bring it into their lives and allow it to ripple out into their communities in in positive ways it's really 
sounds like really incredible work. And we are the parents of, of a very curious and intelligent eight-year-old. And I'm just thinking about how, like, as a Jewish person, we didn't have that rite of passage until the bar mitzvah, which is at age 13. And just like, mm-hmm. like our eight-year-old is ready for something like, he's he's changing in a really interesting way but he's like not quite growing up yet as like a full person but like i'd love to send him out to the forest for (laughs) for a day for the night it's just like such a really this is like a a bit of a personal aside but it's such an interesting time for kids and such a uh interesting point of development that we don't really treat as significant as that 12 13 age transformation and it's Mm -hmm. like yeah, there's just so much going on there. Um, <laughs> maybe a, a different conversation, but um, what you're describing is um, it touches on so many different aspects of of culture. It's almost like thinking about like a cultural, like an entire cultural transformation. How do you um, how do you take that much on? I suppose, and what are like the structures, or how do you like? It seems like there's would always be more to do in that regard like are you able to be growing this project with yourself and with others like how can that continue um on and- a really good question <laughs> um yeah i mean i suppose this work with wild awake has always been led by my own kind of passion and my own curiosities and my own like harsh and deep feeling of of what's needed and um you know, if you had have told me 10 years ago that I would have been holding rites of passage for adults or, you know, performing ceremony, I just I just wouldn't have believed you, you know, because there was such a wounding in myself from being brought up Catholic and this kind of idea of where ceremony comes from or, um, you know, yeah, it just was not in my sphere of awareness. Like, so yeah, I'm really, really fortunate to be able to collaborate with lots of different teachers and different guides, like from, you know, people who hold skills and crafts to language activists to social ecologists. Um, And then through the work that I'm doing, there's like this kind of growing bedrock of people who are also holding these things um, as important you know and I think in Ireland at the moment like there really is a huge cultural shift towards people who are coming back to these old ways coming back to the language and coming back to nature so there's really like no shortage of people but I mean it is a huge question for me at the moment of like how do I um yeah I mean the very question that you're asking like how does this move beyond one person you know and uh, yeah, for, for me at the moment, what it is, is just continually collaborating with people and, and sort of growing it in that way and really holding this um, mantra that this is this is not work that will be achieved in one mm. lifetime, you know, like this is multi-generational work. And if my job at the moment is just like carrying the, you know, because it's not new, it's not new either, you know, like it might have been, well, it has been disrupted for a long time through colonization and through like the Catholic Church and all of these things. But it's very, it's very old things as well. And what a lot of us are doing now is, yeah, looking to those old ways and then like looking to them to inform us about 
how we can approach the very real challenges that we're facing today. Um, my hope is that like with work that I'm doing and it's still very early days for me, like it's sort of moving into the seventh year of of this offering of Wild Awake and um, growing the community of that and then now offering trainings to kind of support people to step into that work further so that it isn't just me, not that it is just me anyway, you know, there's so many people offering this but that it can become sustainable, that it can become beyond my lifetime. I want to talk a little bit about how you see food fitting into your work. I know that you do wildlife tracking and that one of the things that you teach is how to butcher animals using stone tools. And you've recently had an experience where you only ate wild food for a few months. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about some of those things and just generally how you see food fitting into your work. Absolutely. Um, I love food. <laughs> it's funny, like, yeah, because when you asked me to do this podcast, I was like, okay, I really need to start thinking about how food. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk about the Wild Biome Project. Um, so this was a project that was instigated by a woman called Monica Wild, who lived solely on wild food for one year and then wrote this incredible book called The Wilderness Cure. And um, herself and Matthew Rooney, who also accompanied her on that journey, they experienced like huge health and lifestyle shifts when they when they did that. And then as a result, instigated this project in collaboration with Tim Spector of um, the Zoe Project and with support from Dan Saladino as well um, to see, you know, what happens when a Western gut, when we eat only wild food, you know, as foraging teachers, you know, we're constantly waxing lyrical about the importance of eating wild food, how good it is for us, but actually there'd been no studies done to support that claim. So this was the first study of its kind. And uh, yes, yeah, so I was in the three-month cohort. So on spring equinox, 21st of March, I began with um, a group of other foragers from the Association of Foragers, and we ate only wild food for, for three months um, and finished on um, summer solstice. And then I, I just did it again for one month there just by myself because I felt so amazing for those whole three months of doing that. Yeah, I, I just wanted to be something that I really integrate more into my life. Can um, you like walk us through a day of eating during those yeah. three months or a day of not eat, like just a typical day? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, um, so I'd wake up in the morning and I would have my acorn chaga and dandelion root coffee with some hazelnut milk. Um, and I would maybe have like some acorn pancakes with, you know, maybe a little bit of honey or some stewed blackberries that had been stored from the autumn um, and go about my day. Um, I might go out and forage some salad from the garden. So maybe I suppose in that early spring, I was eating a lot of like bittercress and sorrel and navel wort and then moving into the kind of May time where everything's really growing you know it would be like like it could gather a salad with 50 different species in it easily you know 
um, just in maybe 20 minutes of wandering around. But I didn't spend as much time as, as one would think, like out foraging. It was maybe about 20 minutes a day. Or I could do like, you know, a bit longer one day and that would keep me fed for three days. Yeah. And then in the evening time, I might have like a bit of fish with some salad or some fried hogweed shoots and deer fat. Um, sometimes if I had more time than others, I would make a dessert. But I suppose the most challenging thing for me was I worked the whole three months, you know, and, and my work is often being outside on the land for weeks at a time. So I was cooking over the fire, which is great in some ways because all the plants are right there. But I mean, a huge challenge with any kind of, um, I'd say like quote unquote diet, because I really don't want it to be thought of as a diet. You know, it was um, it was a project, it was a life way, but any kind of sort of restricted eating thing is, it takes so much preparation because we have to cook everything from scratch. So some days would be nice and gentle and some days would be, okay, I'm in the kitchen for three hours making more acorn flour or making like my biscuits and my crackers so that everything's easy to go to. But it's like, it's, I suppose one message that I always wanted to really get across with this project is like foraging as a life way, you know, that it's not just, um, you know, I'm going out and I'm picking something that day that I'm going to eat. But like throughout the year, like that is infused into my life. So in the autumn time, I'm out gathering acorns, I'm storing them. Then I'm through the winter, like I'm leaching my acorns so that I have flour for the rest of the year. Like I'm constantly picking, storing, preserving so that I have those things Um. So, yeah, that was something that was really important for me, that it wasn't just this, um, it was a daily thing. And then at the same time, it was kind of, it, it's part of my life. But yeah, as I said, I had so much energy. I felt so deeply in relationship with the place that I'm in. And that was something that I really noticed, the difference of doing it from the spring to doing it in the autumn. You know, I started again on autumn equinox and finished at Samhain. So I did maybe five weeks. And although there's, you know, just as much food, it's very different food. I just didn't feel the same as I did in spring. And of course I didn't because it's not spring anymore. And I know that on lots of different levels. But for for the food of the landscape to actually be mirrored in my body and in my energy was a, a very different experience. Um, and to yeah like feel the kind of I didn't feel as motivated I didn't feel as energized to like keep going you know it was much harder and my body was craving different things like I was craving fats more I was craving carbohydrates more all of these things that my body needs before it goes into hibernation for the winter so um, yeah it's something that I I mean, it's already very deeply infused throughout my life. You know, I, I'll eat wild food every day, but certainly to eat solely wild food is something that I want to continue doing for the rest of my life, you know. Um, and it is for me like a, a process of relationship, you know, like it's really a pathway towards right relationship with the body, with my own body, with the body of the land, with the body of culture, with my wider community, you know, like the generosity that I experienced from people in those months was 
unparalleled, you know, like just receiving gifts of hazelnuts in the post or somebody I've never met just contacting me and saying, oh, I've caught this fish. Do you want it? You know, so it was really, really, really special. And um, yeah, like definitely a window into like what's possible when we return to this kind of land based connective food culture. That's that's really possible. That's fascinating. I'm wondering, like, obviously, you know, the work that you do, a lot of it, you could call a reconnecting with ancestral knowledge, but it also strikes me as like, you're also creating something new at the same time. And I'm wondering how you kind of balance those different levels in your mind of like going back in time and going forward in time to create a new culture, to create new um, rituals. Such a good question. <laughs> How do I do that? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are where we are, you know, it's just like, I I don't live 10,000 years ago in the past, you know, I, <laughs> I kind of wish I did sometimes, even for a little bit, but um, regardless of what I'm doing, you know, I could be standing out in the hills right now, completely dressed in deer skins with stone tools, like filled with wild food. But at the same time, it's like I have the mind, the body of somebody who lives in this time. And um, I, I like I also and that's a big part of my work, like around this question of decolonization, you know, like of how do we unpeel those layers of like how we've come to be where we are now. I just that's such the work of our time, you know, is to, to, to try to begin to see the things that really are so not obvious to us, you know. Um, so yeah, like I could be standing out there, but I'm looking around the hillside now and I know that, well, this might have been Atlantic rainforest at one point, but it's a completely denuded landscape now. So I think the contexts of mm. our times are inescapable and are like we're continually reminded of them and to try and, you know, I think it's a beautiful thing to like to connect in this way, to be out onto the land, to harvest wild food, to use stone tools. It's all very beautiful. And at some point it's like, okay, well, I sort of like flinching saying this, but like how much of it is real, you know, mm. without those deeper questions of like, wh why are we doing this, you know, and what does this mean? And how do we... Um, how do we reweave culture and how do we reclaim ceremony in a way that is significant and appropriate and isn't just like stealing from somebody else's culture, but that we can feel it deep in our bones so that like the future generations that come will will have something to hold on to as well. So, um, yeah, I think certainly like I owe a lot to my upbringing, like, you know, I was eight years old when the Good Friday Agreement was signed in, in, in Northern Ireland. And I grew up in the backdrop of like, yeah, like a, a country recovering from war. And so like political, I've always felt very politicised and that's just consistently been throughout my work and my life. So um, I think like to, to be able to bring those worlds together and to reclaim relationship with the land whilst not turning away from the realities of how and where and 
the deep repressions that are felt throughout our world like that's it's really really important to me because otherwise I feel like I would just be cosplaying or something. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I have this next question about the, you know, like a lot of the sort of skills-based um, trainings and and teaching are, is very practical, but then there's elements of the rituals and the retreats that are very spiritual. Um, but then you to add to that, like a political consciousness as well is also something that I think is so important that wasn't in my question, but like something that you keep touching on your uh, political background and like anarchist principles and that kind of thing. And I don't know if that's something that you wanted to talk about a little more is like how you incorporate all those different elements, whether that's something that is conscious or just a, that's like who you are or, and how, I guess how other people respond to that, you know, are, are people as equally as interested in all of those parts? Or do you find that some are just like, teach me how to use an ax and, other people are like, show me a vision. Like, what's it like incorporating all those things, I guess? Um, yeah, so I suppose it's a good time to talk about this program that I run called The Wild Awakening, which was like a convergence of all of these things. And um, it's always been, you know, well, the spiritual came later for me. There was always the kind of skills and the connection to the land and the the political aspect of that. And then the spiritual was like, hello, I'm here too. And I was like, oh yeah, okay, grad. And uh, so then I was kind of pushing this idea of rewilding and like, that's such a huge concept. And it's been so co-opted in many different ways from like, rewilding on an ecological level to like rewilding you know as you know just walking outside with bare feet or rewilding I don't know like uh, being used in um to sell something as well so it's a word that's been kind of co-opted in lots of different ways but for me it was like it was such a radical concept and like at the heart of it needed to be like, this remembrance that like rewilding is about like living a life in service to to the ecology of your area to the community of your place um, and that it had all these different threads of yes the skills and like yes the life ways that connect us to our place and also that acknowledgement of like how is it that we have come to like, need such a word like why would we even be using this word rewild what does wildness even mean 
Um, and then like, yeah, how do we reclaim ceremony in a way that's not just appropriating from other people or feels like genuine to us? So like, Wild Awakening is sort of my effort to explore these things and to bring a conversation around rewilding that has all of these different threads so that it doesn't just get like diluted into yeah just like going out and dancing with a tree which is brilliant and I love doing that as well but it's like so much bigger than that too um so yeah with as part of that program you know there's lots of different guest facilitators who come in because and again I suppose back to your question of how do I do this work it's like recognizing that none of us have all of the answers you know and that so many people have very vital important parts of the puzzle um, so Moncom again, who I know you've spoken to, teaches on that program as well and really brings those questions of, you know, like reclaiming language, but also like re reclaiming some kind of um, like deep spiritual connection to the land as well. Um, I also work with a social ecologist who comes and we teach about wildlife tracking and then use wildlife tracking as a framework from which we can track like the different um, messages that we have internalized from the dominant culture. Um, so around kind of like narratives around ecology or the personal or the spiritual um, and the physical realms. Um, and just like coming to understand like power and privilege and how we can sit in conflict and navigate it because I actually think that you know learning how to use an axe is is very important but learning how to navigate conflict is probably one of the most essential survival skills of our species and of our time um, and then I have another um, so that's Catherine McCabe comes in and, and teaches about social ecology um, and then Jimmy Billings comes and teaches about decolonization um so yeah again like how is it that we can come to recognize how colonization has you know what has happened to us yes as a people in Ireland but more importantly like how is it that we continue to uphold that story through the choices that we make like the very unique place that Ireland sits in as both oppressed and now as oppressor, you know, and like not shying away from either, but being able to hold the complexity of all of it. Um, so like I kind of bring in a lot of these different voices and then we ground it in the body and in the place by doing these ancestral skills. So, you know, wildlife tracking with the social ecology and then with the decolonization, we might be like tanning a deer skin or making nettle cordage or making a basket so that it's like not only do these concepts, they don't just like stay in our heads and become very kind of unrooted, but that we can like ground them in ourselves and like stay connected to ourselves while we're exploring these really difficult topics, because it's really easy to dissociate, you know, in the pain of the world. And I also bring in like grief ceremony. So like a ceremonial space where people can bring their grief and recognize the the transformative power of that for us to be able to, you know, um, I suppose like alchemize that grief into then action, you know, like and really recognize the, the responsibility that we have in these times and uh, yeah, how we can do that collectively rather than feeling like we need to do it all alone. We're curious about 
what some of the most important or maybe most useful ancestral skills are that have been lost and that we should focus on relearning. And I think, you know, added to that, while I know Ireland is much different geographically than the United States is, where we have the majority of people are living in large cities, kind of less people living in more rural areas. Um, and maybe the rural areas in Ireland are a little bit closer to the cities. Like I, I'm wondering how would someone who maybe lives in a place like Dublin or a place like Belfast that doesn't really get into the outdoors that often might be able to like a little bit more practically incorporate some of these ancestral skills into their daily lives. Say you live in an apartment um, and you're not near Phoenix Park or something like that. Like what, what, what can you do? Yeah. Thank you for that question. Like the first thing that comes to my mind is food and medicine, you know, um, it's like our, our basic needs and, and learning how to meet them, particularly within the context of like, yeah, the precarity of our global food systems and of like our healthcare systems now as well. Um, and, you know, fits in nicely with the podcast to say food as well. Um, and I think like the amazing thing about that is that, you know, it's everywhere. Like, I mean, I, I as I said, grew up in Belfast and, and lived in Dublin for a long time. And kind of anywhere you go, there's always going to be nettles. And nettles are like one of the most nutrient dense foods that we have really abundantly um, in the, in this country and in many others. Um, so like that, um, you know, dissolving that binary of like food and medicine, it's both, you know, and it's also fiber as well if we if we needed that for for closing ourselves. Um, but I I think that's something that I always offer as advice is that you know this concept of the wild as like being this other place or that you know nature stops at the city limits or wildness stops outside of ourselves that like we're both and and that um, nature is within the cities because everything comes from the earth so like on a practical level it's like if you're walking through the city like coming to know just the quote-unquote weeds that you would come across as you're walking down the street or coming to know the like abandoned lots in your area where no doubt there will be those plants growing that are both medicinal and edible if not both um or like you know wildlife tracking like again it's like there is such an abundance of wildlife in the cities so like coming to learn like how to recognize their tracks and their signs so that the story that we're reading isn't just that of a human protagonist, but we know where our stories overlap with other creatures as well. Um, so I suppose like on a really practical level, I would say that like food and medicine, like really important for these times. And, you know, <laughs> sometimes I really miss living in the city just for like the people you know like for the diversity of people and so the diversity of responses that there are to the times that we're living in um like for me that's a big part of rewilding is like that collaboration that connection that like coming back to like what makes us human okay well it's like our ability to communicate to collaborate to work together like always like looking to our fungal friends you know for those kind of teachings of like how is it that we like really like collaborate in this way 
um, and like cross pollinate and create new create like new ideas in response to the times that we're living in. Um, yeah. So I think it's like wherever you live, there's there's always going to be something. And um, perhaps ironically, like in Ireland, living rurally, it can often be more of a challenge for foraging, you know, because, well, there's so much like glyphosate and, and things sprayed on the fields here. Like it's yeah. so intensively farmed, right? And that's like, so much more of a worry. Um, so, yeah, it's um, there's so many different ways. Yeah, but certainly I would I would say that like just getting to know your neighbors is a really good place to start. Like be be they human, be they more than human, like but just like coming to know your surroundings and holding these questions of like, you know, who's crossing my path each day, like who is that tree that I might pass by, like where is my water coming from? Like just yeah, beginning to get really curious about the interconnections that you have. Um, and how you can like be in a relationship with those. I, I don't know how to exactly ask this, but I feel like, you know, there's obviously so much interest in like the type of work that you do and rewilding is, you know, it's very, uh, it's something that people are getting a lot more interested in. But then at the same time, there are so many environmental problems that are also growing at the same time. So it's like, there's this growing interest in, in things like rewilding, but then, you know, agricultural runoff is like getting worse and worse and it makes it a challenge for foraging. What's your take on like, on, I guess the way things are going in terms of like, you do feel this energy and this growing momentum towards the work that you're doing, but at the same time, you know, it might, it's obviously only in certain areas, right? And then there's all these other issues that need to be addressed and combated and and everything. So I don't know how to answer. <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> She's just one person, but I know. I'm sorry. I was just like trying to think of like a bigger pick. Like I'm just thinking of, um, you know, I'm just thinking of like what's happening. Well, there's and, some, it seems and, like there's a lot of levels in your question, right? Yeah. Like there's the first. Right. Maybe more Take practical over, level is this idea that that foraging people are becoming more and more interested in foraging, but maybe not all of the places where people would forage. Right. Um, the things that they're foraging are like actually healthy. It, it reminds me of this like coastal walk that we go on with Sally a lot, where you know in one part of the area near the beach, there's um, there's an agricultural field, and um, she's like, stay away from that sea lettuce over there or yeah. something because we can't trust, you know, what's happening with that grass or because of the cow over there. Um, so there's that, like, how do you kind of navigate like where you're going to forage and how do you teach people like what is safe? And then I think maybe Max, you're also asking like a much broader. I don't know. Maybe question. it wasn't a question. Maybe I'm just yeah. noticing, maybe I'm just mm, noticing yeah. that. We and need more. Wow, the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one thing that kept stirring yeah. around in my head when you were saying that, Max, and I was trying to figure out who to attribute the quote to, but I don't know, maybe we can find out, but it was like, hope is a muscle, mm. you know, that like, it's, um, yeah, I think sometimes, I don't know, hope is a really complicated thing for me, you know, because I think we, we pin so much on it and it can kind of um, stop people from acting sometimes, but like this real consciousness that it's a muscle and that 
something that I really try to push in my work is like the responsibility of of this knowledge of this life of what we're doing so that yes people can um you know whenever people are in relationship with place then like Sally they begin to notice where the runoff is coming like they begin to notice like oh yeah as you're saying the sea lettuce grows really well whenever there's loads of pollution like you know and it's like we need people who can identify those things who are in who are in deep relationship with place so that when that place is harmed, they feel it in their heart, like they would feel the harm being done to a loved one. Like that's what we really need. And like I kind of, you know, so much of my work has redirected to work with adults at the moment, which is where I need to be right now. But like see working with children I think it's like one of the most important things at the moment you know because they're just like to to infuse that kind of love of the natural world from such a young age like that's why I do what I do because I had that privilege like you know so it's like I think just in any way that people can um there's a there's a Mary Oliver quote that I've been kind of leading a lot of my workshops with recently, which is, um, you know, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. And it really speaks to that, like, yeah, we need to like, feed that like love and, and astonishment and wonder and awe within ourselves by giving the only thing that we have to give, which is like our attention. And then just like tell as many people as possible about it. Because then it's like that's what's going to really catalyze people into wanting to protect it, into forming community groups that will protest against like, you know, I'm thinking about Loch Ness at the moment and the amount of runoff that is like killing like this beautiful elder like of ours, you know, and how that's like being, yeah, like. So many people in the local area speaking up about that because their livelihoods are so deeply interwoven with that body of water, you know. So it's um it just like needs that that reconnection, you know. And I I think that my my work is so popular and this kind of work is so popular at the moment is because people really want that, you know. And it sort of circles back to this kind of you know, the, the Catholic Church is like not at the forefront of Ireland anymore, you know, like that that spiritual void is there for people and they want something to care about. Like we want our lives to have meaning and yeah, like what better thing to care about than our home and this place. So like, yeah, I think just as many people as we can tell about it is a good thing. That was a great answer to my poorly worded question. Good answer too, but it's making me think of a lot of different things. I think sometimes if you take a step back and you look at kind of like the macro, it's really easy to get overwhelmed. But, you know, you brought up Loch Ness as an example. And I think it's important to point out to people who are listening who, you know, should Google that and, and find out um, about what's happening with that body of water. But it did make me think about how there is literally like one guy who's like a, some 30 something year old guy who I don't know if he's like a duke or something but there's one person who privately owns that body of water that I think provides um, a large percentage of the drinking water to people that live in the north so when you if you think about a problem on that level um and I don't know what the solution is I know he's offered to, to sell it which is just crazy in and of itself, but we're not always talking about these like huge problems to which there are no solutions. I mean, 
if you think about it, this one guy owns this body of water. So maybe there's a way he can be pressured to do the right thing. I don't know. Um, but it also reminds me of like someone that I really look up to is Mariam Kaba. And she always talks about how like you can't do everything. You can't you can't solve all the problems in the world by yourself. So you should pick a lane and stay in that lane and do the work that you need to do in that area and encourage other people to do the same. And that that's really how change happens, I think. Mm-hmm. Also, <laughs> another thing that it was either Mariam Kaba or Kelly Hayes says a lot that everything worth doing is done in collaboration with others. So I think that's a really mm-hmm. important message that your work speaks to a lot. I think also, (laughs) they also speak about the difference between hope and optimism, where optimism is, uh, let's see if I state this correctly, but optimism is just like this sort of blind faith that things will just somehow get better, whereas hope is an active, requires active effort, requires engagement and, and, and everyday effort to actually be working to make things better, which I think you spoke a little bit to earlier as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess related to that, uh, um, I was curious if there are any particular teachers, whether they're cultural figures or writers or creative thinkers who have influenced you in your work that you might recommend other people check out. So many, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose like I mentioned Lynx Filden already and um, she was such an incredible well, like I suppose, firstly, you know, I learned from a man called John Ryder, who's an incredible naturalist based in Sussex, and he's my tracking teacher still. Um, and he really taught me like the skills, like really like learning things very, very well. And then Lynx Filden, you know, she she really brings this like ancestral skills and also like this like depth of heart as well. So they're like two really important um, teachers in my life. Um, and then I suppose like on a on a wider um I learn a lot from eels. <laughs> like really like totally entranced by eels and, and this ties back to Loch Ness as well because I I receive the eel skins from the eels um from Loch Ness. And I, I teach them as part of my workshops a lot, teach how to tan the skins and then make things from the skins. Um, And they've been like a really important teacher for me in terms of like mystery and being with the unknown and like transformation and um, also like nettle, huge teacher, deer, massive teacher. Um, Yeah, lots of other than human teachers. Um, And uh, I think, um, yeah, like the Irish language as well. Like I've been learning the Irish language since moving to the Gwil Talks here. And that's been like a really, really incredible teaching for me of um, who we are as people and who my ancestors were and how they viewed the world. Um, and like within that, you know, I have so many incredible teachers who are connected to this place. Um, yeah, I'm trying to like think of writers, but there's like, so many um i would definitely say like joanna macy has been an incredible influence on me especially transitioning out of like on the ground activism into more kind of yeah spiritual activism or cultural work um and yeah gosh like mushrooms (laughs) 
huge teacher as well. Like they're kind of, their teachings are limitless and boundless, you know? Yeah, I should have included non-human teachers yeah, humans yeah. in my in my question so now i know that for do that in the future interviews That's good. <laughs> yeah yeah thank you for that question I, I i owe so much to my teachers like you know and I, it feels really good to to always honor them in circle yeah we always like to just offer an opportunity if there's anything that we missed that you think we should talk about on the show to like put it out there anything um, else because you never know. I mean, I could do, I could do a little plug for this journal that I co-produce. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's do that. We'd love so, to um, that. I co-produce with a dear friend Denise Conroy a journal called Ermid's Journal. So, Ermid is the um, goddess of healing and herbalism of the Tuatha Yeah, it's a journal that kind of brings together like themes of like foraging and folklore and myths and magic, um, and also just like culture and ancestral life ways is like living breathing practice and um, so we're just about to release a new journal for february and for the first time ever we'll be having like an in-person launch <laughs> which is like quite a big deal for us and um, so yeah people can purchase that journal um through my website and and continue to support that work um yeah, and so we we every time we release an issue, like we do it in um, solidarity with the grassroots organisations. So we've supported different like Irish traveller organisations, environmental organisations, pro-choice organisations, and and this one will be in solidarity with Loch Ness and with the people who are campaigning to bring Loch Ness under um, local ownership so that it can be more fully tended to. Um, yeah, I think that's. Really that sounds great. So what's your website and Instagram for everybody who can go yeah, so check, website, check it out and follow along? Thank you. It's wildawake.ie. And then my Instagram is wildawakeireland. Great. Cool. Well, this was a really great chat. Yeah, absolutely. So Thank cool. You. Thank you so much for taking the time. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.